And uh, it is uh, my great pleasure today to introduce to you uh, the Right Reverend Gregory Brewer, uh, the Bishop of the Diocese of Central Florida. He and his wife, Laura Lee, they have five sons. And I think that's, you're stopping at five. We're done. We're done. Uh, he's in Central Florida. The sea city is Orlando. Uh, Central Florida, uh, the state of Florida, the southernmost state in the northern part of the United States. Uh, and so uh, delighted. It's an amazing uh, diocese. Uh, a lot of influx of, of immigrants uh, from Latin American countries, as well as the world's largest retirement community uh, in the villages. And so a lot of dynamic, wonderful ministry uh, going on there. Uh, Bishop Brewer went to Lynchburg College, uh, went to Virginia Seminary, taught at Trinity School for Ministry, was the rector uh, for a number of years at Good Samaritan Paoli, Pennsylvania, on the main line right outside of Philadelphia. And before elected bishop, he was the rector of Calvary and St. George's Churches there in Manhattan in New York City. And so, Bishop Brewery, it's my great honor and privilege uh, to say welcome and glad that you're here. Thank you. Uh, please be sure to silence your cell phones as we stand and sing hymn number 508. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering here in the name of your Son and for the promise that he has made to us, that when we gather together in his name, he is here in our midst. So, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to his presence, work in and through us that which you desire. We yield to your authority. And we thankfully place ourselves into your hands. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's a joy to be here. I've known your deans, both Andrew as well as others, and uh, still remember Andrew Pearson. He and I were together in a ministry outside of Washington. I was on the board. He was on the staff. And Andrew was the guy that I would go to if I got bored and wanted to go do something fun. So I'm sure you all are having a great time with him. And believe me, if, even if none of that were true, I'd be happy to go to any church that served okra for lunch. So I feel very, very much at home. It's an extraordinary level of trust that your dean has placed in these speakers, this rather distinguished group of people, I have to confess, uh, because we're sitting out there, or standing, and we're about to go in, and I said, do you have any idea what I'm going to talk about? He said, no. I thought, oh my word. So I appreciate the trust, and I quite frankly hope I'm worthy of it. What I want to talk about today has everything to do with, I'm going to deal with a parable in the Gospel of Mark, and actually I'll do part of this tomorrow, today and then in the other part tomorrow, addressing the issue of the tensions of what it means to be a Christian in the midst of a predominantly non-Christian culture, and also 
also how that gets translated in the diversity of what we presently know as the Episcopal Church. And that's kind of the perspective that I'm bringing. And I do that because, for me, the kinds of tensions that I'm describing, in fact, and that hopefully the prayerful effort to negotiate those successfully is, in fact, my job as a biblically conservative bishop serving in the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church. Um, and quite frankly, I revel in it. Uh, if it were, I told Andrew, if, any, if it were any less complex, I'd get bored. And so this is not a grant or a complaint in any way, shape, or form. Instead, what I want to try to do is lay out something of the lay of the land. And out of that, I, what I believe, the God-given challenge, and I mean that by divine appointment, the God-given challenge of what it means to faithfully serve Jesus Christ in this environment where God has placed us, where we, in fact, have been called. So, with that in mind, what I want to begin is read the parable itself. This is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. Very familiar story. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do, then do you want us to go and gather it all? But he said, No, because if you gather out the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. Now, dropping down to verse 36, because what happens is the crowds disperse and the disciples come to Jesus and they say in verse 36, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So Jesus answers, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will be thrown into the fire, a furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. Now, I don't know what your experience is. But at least being a bishop in the Diocese of Central Florida, the field that I experience, both in the greater arena where I serve in the community of Orlando and beyond, as well as the church where I have been planted by God, feels a lot like this parable. It feels familiar. 
And so what I had to keep doing was going back and not taking the easiest answer first. You see, remember the point of the parables, if you back up a little bit, Jesus explains to his disciples is that the parables are number one spoken first to a crowd because they can't understand. And I must confess to you that there are times when I come to the scripture and because I've heard the passage so often, I actually am blocked from understanding its real meaning. It it becomes so familiar to me that it becomes, oh yeah, I got that. I know what that means. As opposed to actually wrestling with its content. Because as one author said, the parables of Jesus are disorienting. And they are meant to be. They are designed to slightly put us off balance. And then out of that, coax us into the other world of God's gracious and courageous grace. So this is not a parable that even with all of the little allegorical points that Jesus makes later to his disciples, it's not a parable that is deciphered particularly easily. In fact, if you go back and read commentaries, everybody has got his or her own idea about what Jesus is really trying to say. I say that not because I want to give you the secret that they didn't know. I would never even want to try to attempt to do that. But instead, that allows for some breathing room as we look at the parable that creates the possibility for different levels of application. I hope that's okay. There there are some crowds of people that if you don't buy the interpretation I give, then you must be wrong. And while there is actually some objective reality to the scripture that should be self-evident, when it comes to parables, it's just a little bit murkier. And I think for a reason. So, some people say, to whom is Jesus addressing this? Is it to the crowds or to the disciples? And there's controversy about that. There's some controversy about, you know, well, what's the field? Is it the secular world? Is it the church in the world? Is it the church alone? And different people have taken different tacks as to what they mean. What I want to say is, here's what this seems like. A couple of vignettes. I have a Panera Bread right down the street from the diocesan office. And I often go down there to have breakfast and meet somebody. I walk in and I'm dressed in a purple shirt. I've got the bishop's cross on. So it's pretty clear who, who I am. There's nothing hidden about it. And what happens is, is that when I walk into that Panera, I become in that moment almost a blank slate for how people perceive or experience or not the church. Sometimes the look is warm, welcoming, hello, how are you? Other times it's extraordinarily suspicious. Who, who are you? Are, are you a predator? Are you a financial swindler? Or as someone commented to my wife, actually she was my fiance at that point. I was quite young. I was a child. I was 24 when I got ordained. Um, and I didn't get married until after that. And so at the engagement party, one of my wife's former boyfriends walked up to Laurelie and said, A priest? Mm, you could have done better. Um, <laughs> And so there are all of these images that that we have, some of which in that crowd, as it were, are innocent bystanders 
Some have been mistreated by the church in a way that makes their negative reaction extraordinarily understandable. In fact, painfully so. But then there are others who think what I am doing is, at best, silly. If not downright dangerous. Because I believe in a God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who came into the world at a very specific point in history, who took upon himself the very sins of the world, who died and paid the penalty for my sins and rose bodily from the dead. I mean, I'm nuts. And so there are some who, because they know that's where I stand, or even they don't know, they just sort of see this. And and they are happily, they happily see themselves as people who oppose, sometimes vocally, the positions that we take in the life of the church. But then it gets actually more complicated than that. Because you see, the the weeds that Jesus describes, when they're first beginning to sprout up, there's a certain kind of weed called darnel, literally. They look just like wheat. You can't tell the difference. So that when the slaves come to the owner and say, you want us to pull all of the weeds out? He's saying, no, because you'll disturb the wheat. Why? Because at this stage, you can't tell when they're young, wheat from weeds. There's such a similarity. But the fact of the matter is, is that when these weeds grow up and sprout their grain, the grain is actually poisonous. It's detrimental. And because, so when I think about that, it puts me in a position of realizing that sometimes I can't tell who the wheat is and who the weeds are. And that sometimes the very people who serve and are a part of this church where I serve may or may not be wheat or weeds, and I can't tell. And sometimes that feels extraordinarily treacherous. It, this, there's a dark side to this parable. And the dark side is you've been called to live in a place of some genuine ambiguity among people who, in fact, well, Jesus put it this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to live in this field requires several things that I want to underscore. Number one, it requires a level of trust in the goodness of a heavenly father who loves us and and in one who is deeply committed to providing for our needs and leading us even through the valley of the shadow of death. And that I cannot count on any place, including the church, as always a place of safety that protects me from harm. You see, there's some of this idea that what the church should be is this very separate, safe, and protected fellowship where I can come in and I can feel protected and loved on and healed. And thank God that happens and it happens quite a lot. But it's also true that even in those kinds of fellowships, you're not always sure, especially if a leader, you know, who your friends are. This parable normalizes that sense of I'm trusting in God to be my shepherd, regardless of what's happening to me in terms of my relationships. 
And that while we want to be a part of a fellowship of people who deeply love and care for one another, who forgive, who make allowances for one another, as Paul says, because they love one another, the fact of the matter is it would not be unbiblical for those of us in one of those fellowships to occasionally experience a certain level of betrayal. That's a strong word, but it in fact does happen. And a part of what Jesus is trying to say here in this parable is, guess what? This looks like normal life. This looks like normal life. And in fact, it is that kind of normalcy that invites the kind of tension where not bad things, but genuine ministry can begin to happen. There's a musician that I follow on Twitter, and he posted this not long ago. He said, like a, a guitar string, you can't muse, make any music without a certain level of tension. And he's absolutely right. You see, when I became a bishop in the Episcopal Church, there was a certain part of me that was like, oh God, you really want me to do that? And I, <laughs> I was really quite nervous. I didn't know what it was going to be like. What I discovered, to my absolute surprise, was that the tensions of our conversations with the, within the Episcopal House of Bishop would become, and in fact, an extraordinary platform for ministry. Both in the serving and the giving of bishops, of sharing with bishops with whom I profoundly disagree, as well as in the lively conversations of genuine vocal disagreement that in fact happens between us. I wouldn't want to be any other place. And my point is, is that if you want to be in a church where we all agree with one another about everything and we never have any tensions, chances are what you've done is you've chosen a place that is decided to be insular and that the focus of that church becomes a kind of interior level of self-care that excludes the possibility of mission and evangelism unless those people are going to look just like you before they ever get into the building. Tension is a part of what, in fact, creates the, the possibility for a genuinely adventurous kind of ministry. And I love that. I want to be a part of a place that gets into those nooks and crannies in the life of our culture where people are very suspicious of people like me or anybody who calls themselves a Christian and can get in there and begin to build a relationship over the character tour that they might have of what it means to be a Christian so that we can begin to discover in a whole new way who Jesus is in that kind of a situation rather than merely hanging out with people who look and talk just like me all the time. This tension, in other words, is normal. The other thing that you should, I should say is, is that this tension is serious. I mean, I would never want to do what Jesus does, but of course he's Jesus and I'm not. Because he says that who are these Darnell? Well, they're, they're seed that the enemy has sown and they are weeds. I'm grateful that God has not given me either the discernment, much less the arrogance, to make decisions about who's wheat and who's weeds. That leads very quickly to a church becoming a sect. Rather than the kind of broad, open welcome that is in fact the hallmark of men and women who stand for the gospel. But in that welcome, it's not always a safe place. So here's my question. 
as I wrap this up. If tension is normal for the life of the church, as well as for what it means to be a Christian in the world, are you willing to so put your trust in Christ Jesus that you're willing to be in the places where he has called you, knowing that tension is a part of the package? Or are you still in that place where you need to surround yourself with people who like you all the time? Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have friends. I have great friends, actually, and extraordinary prayer warriors who are praying for me even this minute. And I profoundly count on their prayers. But if I only wanted to hang out with people who looked and talked and acted just like me and parroted the same Christian language that I do, what would happen is that we'd enjoy one another's company and the world would be lost. I don't want that on my doorstep. So are you willing to enter in even if tension is a part of the package? Are you willing as you enter into those places to face the tension of perhaps being lied about, misunderstood, and perhaps even betrayed, and be able to lay that at the feet of Jesus and keep going and not back out because you've been wounded? Because it will happen. There is a certain resilience. There's a certain level of courage. There's a certain level of stick to itness. Perseverance is the biblical word that is, in fact, part and parcel of men and women who are willing to lead and stand for Christ in the midst of that kind of ambiguity. It means you will be misunderstood. It means that people will gossip about you behind your back. It will be that people tell things that about you that are outrageously untrue. And the more clear you are, the more that tension will only increase. Will you enter in anyway? For the sake of the fact that the very people who speak against you are men and women for whom Jesus has died. And he loves them profoundly. And it may be that the way you learn how to say no to the lies, forgive and keep going, is the witness that they need to hear something new about the gospel that they've never understood before. Are you willing to allow your vindication not to come in this life? But until the very end, when then the righteous will shine like the sun. But not now. That's the call of this parable. To say tension is normal. In the midst of it, the call to perseverance Vindication not happening until after you are long gone. And yet in the midst of that, knowing that Jesus is sowing into you his seed, that in the midst of this tension and ambiguity, you can live for your Father in heaven. May that be our portion. Amen. Amen.